Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. To get instant access to almost 20 hours of world-class online video strength and conditioning information, go to upmentorship.com and help support the show. This episode's guest is Derek Hansen. Derek is a certified strength and conditioning specialist that has been working with athletes in speed, strength and power sports since 1988. Originally working with track and field athletes, Derek expanded his services to assist athletes in all sports with an emphasis on speed development. He has since worked with some of the top performers in the world as a coach and as a consultant, including Olympic medalists, world record holders, Canadian national team athletes, professional sports organizations, and professional athletes from numerous sports. Derek is also someone who worked very closely with the late Charlie Francis, and as a lot of you listening to this know, Charlie has been a profound influence on many coaches across the world, including myself. On this episode, Derek and I discussed many topics, including obviously Derek's background and influences, the good things and bad things that Derek sees within the training profession, absolute speed development for field-based athletes, managing the central nervous system in the training process, hamstring injuries and the rehabilitation of hamstring injuries, and much more. This was a really great episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Coach Derek Hansen, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast. You are someone who I've been meaning and wanting to get on for a long time, and finally we've hooked up, um, and hopefully now my internet connection here in the house here in Boston will hold up well. So Derek, just for the listeners who are not too familiar with who you are, just fill us in your background. Uh, well, thanks. Well, before I start, thanks for having me on, Robbie. I, I, I know a lot about, about you and your, your podcasts, and it's it's a real pleasure to, to be interviewed by you and, and just to have a conversation with you. So, thanks first off, that, that's great. Appreciate it. Uh, as far as my background, I, I would say I come from a pretty strict track and field athletics background initially, and that's, you know, as an athlete, you know, I played other sports and basketball and you know, soccer and all those things, but... Uh, I was a track and field athlete uh, in the collegiate ranks and, and competed nationally in Canada, and that was a good foundation, I think, for, I guess, my philosophy on, on how do you assess improvement and measure effectiveness of a training program, because it's all there. It's, you know, if you're going to do weightlifting, you're going to see on the back end what comes out of that. Are you going to run faster? Are you going to jump higher? Are you going to you know, are you going to improve essentially? So a lot of the time we were experimenting with what worked uh, and and it was, you know, pretty distinct on the back end. And if we got better in something and we didn't get better in our sport, it was, it was a tough pill to swallow, but, you know, it, it made us think, okay, well, what is the best way to get better in what we do? And I think that's, that's what I've carried through. Um, you know, I, I started working with multi-sport athletes a little later in my coaching career, and initially I didn't, you know, stray from what I did in track and field. You want to get faster, you want to get stronger, you want to get more explosive, right? And I think along the way, you want you stick to your guns, you stick to your principles, but unfortunately the market doesn't necessarily, you know, flow at the same way that, you know, your philosophy may go or your, your results have gone, and that's, that's I think, difficult for a lot of people where you're like well I know this works but everybody's doing this and uh, I think that was that was pretty apparent in the article I read the other day uh, that 
quoted Brian Dew from the Boston Celtics uh, um, about all the injuries in, in the NBA, and it's like, well, people aren't training like they should be training. They're training like they want to train, or you know, the trend has uh, taken them. So, you know, my background lately has been more in multi-sport. Obviously, um, I've had you know some good experience as of late working uh, with the NFL, mostly teams and consulting uh, teams. Um, but I've worked with you know basketball. I've had I've, you know I've had some some clients uh, or some work with the NBA and had some people I talked to in the NHL and Major League Baseball. So it's pretty broad. And then I like I like the fact that I've worked in Canada with national teams that are non-professional sports, but more you know Olympic based sports and winter sports, speed skating, bobsleigh, um, you know field hockey, which is more of an international sport than it is a North American sport. Um, you know, softball, and, and and on a whole bunch of other ones like boxing. I had some boxing athletes, the amateur boxing, but but the same thing keeps coming back. It's you know, am I creating all these separate individual training programs that are unique to that sport? And for the most part, no, I'm not. I'm sticking to the same principles that apply to track and field. You know, I want people to get faster. I want people to get you know more supple. I want people to have proper recovery, and I want people to get more explosive and and have the work capacity to get through their training and get through their their event or their sport. And it's pretty simple. I, I I'm not the guy that's going to be saying, oh, this is so complicated, and we have to make your training program look so complicated. And the more complicated, the better it is. Mm. I'm more of like, let's simplify. Let's let's strip away you know the Bruce Lee quote. Let's strip away everything that's useless. And let's try to find the, the the diamond under there. All of that crap. So, anyways, I, I, hopefully that was a an adequate answer about my background. But that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. And are you still involved with Simon Fraser? Are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing work there still. So great, great stuff. So, the question I always ask everyone that comes on is that uh, who has been your biggest influence? Now, not only on you as a coach, but also as a person. And obviously, Charlie would be would be a huge one, but. And you can also obviously get into what, how Charlie uh, has has influenced you usually. But who else uh, alongside Charlie has has been a huge influence? Well, just speaking about Charlie initially was you know it's it's one of those things where I knew him on two different levels. One, everybody knew him as uh, the coach, the sprint coach in Canada. And, and when I was growing up in the '80s, that's you know who you looked up to, and yeah. and and you saw the results and. You know, everybody can talk about you know how they did it, and you know, but but he he, he succeeded uh, amongst people who were doing the same thing. He succeeded exceptionally. So obviously, the training had something to do with it. Um, so I, I remember when I was about 16 years old, 17 years old, and ironically, it was at Simon Fraser University. They were doing a track meet out in Vancouver, and Charlie was speaking. And so I'm 16 years old, and. I, you know, when you're 16 years old, you don't think about training theory. You don't think about um, why you're doing what you're doing. You just go out and you train. So I had a chance to see, see him or hear him speak and see him. Um, and he might have been in his late 30s at the time. But, you know, he was the kind of person when he spoke about training, you're like, this guy really knows what he's talking about. You know, there's no, there was no doubt about it. And the other thing was that, there was so much clarity to what he was saying that it really caught your attention. It wasn't like you're sitting there going, wow, this guy is so way over the top, I don't really understand, but he must be smart. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was kind of the, like, this makes perfect sense. Why aren't we all doing this? Um, and I'd like to learn more about this. And, you know, 
so that that was the first sort of level of a relationship with Charlie Fritz, which I think a lot of people had in Canada. And, and, and unfortunately, in 1988, you know, all that went down, and uh, you know, everybody thinks you know the the, the majority of the layperson may think, oh, he was a drug coach, but he was you know he was brilliant. And and aside from all that other crap, if we had still had him around, I think we would have advanced so much farther in that regard with training theory and and just everything, just his coaching eye and his, his biomechanics. So when I finally, you know, started working with him, it was interesting because then, you know, it kind of, you know, you open the box and you're like, oh my God, there's so much more to it. And the great thing is he never talked about drugs. Like he didn't have to. I think that was the great thing about him was that, you know, back in the time when he was training, everybody was doing it. Yeah. And, and nobody was, you know, poo-pooing anybody else or, you know, this is what we did, right? Um, so, you know, you know, the self-righteousness of everybody going, well, this guy was a drug coach, and he took a fall for everybody, and that's unfortunate. And the, good, the thing that I know is he's a good person. He was a nice guy. He was very generous with his information and knowledge, and as everybody knows, and, and he was brilliant, and it's unfortunate that he's gone. Um, but I think influentially in terms of, like, training theory and thought process and this idea that we don't have to really give in to conventional thinking is, is something that I gained from him. And then from when you when you know Charlie, you get to know Al Vermeil, and Al Vermeil's the same. He has, and, and the difference between Charlie and Al Vermeil is, you know, aside from their political differences, um, <laughs> would be uh, Al is very, Al is much more enthusiastic and hands-on and, like, just gets in there and, and wants to do it. Charlie would stand back, like, you wouldn't see Charlie working out or anything like that, but Al is... Al is doing everything that he's learning about, and that's the great thing about Al. He's very, very hands-on. Um, and not that Charlie wasn't hands-on, but it was just a different approach. So you have two different personalities preaching kind of the same thing, and Al comes from more of, I would say, uh, maybe a lifting background and a, a multi-sport background, um, having worked with football and basketball and baseball, but, you know, had the same thought process. So those two guys together being sort of mentors was, I think, very good for me in terms of clarifying my thought process about training and, and finding out what was working and what wasn't working and, and having the courage to say, look, this is crap. You know, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. This is absolute crap. Like, I don't care what the industry is saying. This is crap. Um, so that, that was good. And then, again, from knowing those people, you, you know other good people. And I think that's the, the take-home message here is once you, once you start meeting good people in the industry, guess what, they know other good people. And I think that's that's how it works. It's just, you know, sit down, talk with somebody. And I'm probably getting into your other questions, but um, sit down and talk with somebody and you find out they're a good person, they're doing good things, and then you find out their philosophy matches somebody else that you can talk to. And, mm. and you just keep learning. So the other person I've learned from is Rob Panarello. And he and also people like Don Chu, both of those guys, and another person is Joseph Horgan. So they all come from a medical background. So whether it's physiotherapy, chiropractic, but they've also all worked in the performance realm as strength and conditioning coaches or performance coaches, Don Chu coach track. And, you know, when you start learning about their realm in terms of the rehabilitation and how they've integrated it with performance training and strength and conditioning, then you get, you know, a, a greater appreciation for everything and you learn more about how everything works together. And now if you would just talk to somebody who was a physical therapist who had no uh, involvement in performance training or coaching, that's a different conversation. So, you know, having these people that you can access who 
have skills in different areas is very, very valuable, I think. And if you have a chance to talk to any of these people, you know, go talk to them, like phone them up, go visit them like you did, like visiting Alan, spending time with them, that's invaluable. Like, and you can go to a conference and you can go to read a book and you can just go visit these people and talk to them and that's where the great stuff comes out. So, I mean, those those have been my biggest influences. Obviously, you know, my family and my parents and all the, all that, you know, the people that support me, I think, deserve credit as well. So, Absolutely. anyways... Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more. I, I just, I'm my way of thinking is like to go actually visit these people and sit down and actually get to know them as you just quoted. And that's why I, for the listeners, listen. I, I recently spent two days with Alvar Meal and in his home in Cincinnati. And one of the best things about Derek was that I, uh, I got to sit down with him and show him my training theory that that I've that I've kind of adapted from his and got his thoughts on it and. He just turned around and said you're doing a great job. So like obviously that was a great thing to hear from one of my one of my idols, like and mentors in the field. So and, and that's great. And you know you know they're they're really a good person when um, you're you're with them and you're like, Wow, this guy's Al Vermeil and you know and then he turns around and says, What do you think? You know, yeah. what is your opinion on that? I'd like to know what you've done. Always, it, yeah. He it, always asks that. So it's so flattering. He'd always say, "What do you think?" And then if I yeah. show if I show him something, he wants to learn it. And you're there thinking, "Well, Al's seventy, and he still wants to learn from like a twenty-eight-year-old kid." Yeah, that that right there, you know. Hey, I'm stuck speaking to the right person. But if you go talk to somebody and like, I know everything, and blah blah blah, and then they don't listen to what you say, you know, get the hell away from that person. Yeah. Like, go find somebody that's going to appreciate you. I think that's 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 sort of a litmus test for me is. Again, is it a good person that, that genuinely is interested in you? Um, and that's how you get a good relationship uh, to develop your knowledge and, and share back and forth. And that, that, that's how it works. It's like a, yeah. it's like a good marriage. Right. So the, the next question, and, and as you kind of alluded to there in your answer, you, you kind of touched on some of the questions that are to come, but we can still delve in a bit deeper. Yep. So the next question I always ask is, um, I've kind of changed this question a little bit because I realized actually just yesterday, I was thinking to myself, I was like, this question's a little bit negative. I could put a positive spin on it. <laughs> so I always used to ask, you know, what are the problems you see within the training profession? But I'm, I'm going to add, what are what are the problems you see, but also what are the good things you see in the industry? So if you want to, you can start at either or. Usually people start with the problems and lead into to, to the good things. I think the problems are is the, the problem is, and it's not a problem in that it's it's a conscious thing. It's a problem is that we're not acknowledging what has been done before us. Yeah. You know what has been accomplished, um, whether it be in you know any sport. You know this guy. You know what did Pele do? I would like to know what Pele did, right? Yeah. You know why are we why are we spending so much time on what's happening right now? There's great stuff that happened in the past in terms of training and preparation, and it may not have involved weights or kettlebells or whatever everybody's using now. And that's, that's the goal for me, is like, how did that person achieve it back then with limited technology? And I think, not that technology is bad, but obviously I, I wrote a couple of articles on sports science, and my whole problem with sports science is it's, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit fraudulent right now because it's not even science. A lot of it is just, you know, data collection, which isn't science. Uh, and and sort of using big words, which isn't science either. Science is you know following a process where you test something and see if it works, and then retest it, and how does it fit in, and does it apply to what you're doing, and you know is it applied science? So uh, the smoke and mirror stuff really gets me down. Where people are saying, oh, we're using this technology, and we're using this equipment, and I have this new fabulous exercise, and it's like, eh. 
I don't think it's about that. I think it's about you know stressing the organism. It's about mm. providing adequate recovery and, and seeing how that works and stepping back. You know, I, I, I'm much more impressed with somebody who's accomplishing something with three exercises as opposed to ten exercises. Yeah, yeah, I get you. And that, I think that's the key. If you can simplify things and get fabulous results, then that's awesome. And, and the other thing is, if you only have three three exercises or you know these very fewer variables, now it's easier to make adjustment and see what the change is. Um, when you have so many exercises and so many protocols and you're like providing so much variation, like we're going to switch it up every three weeks and change the how the hell do you know what's working? Yeah. It just muddies everything. So that's, that's, I'm not going to say it's a negative. I'm just seeing, I'm just, I guess, providing an observation of what I see and, and where I think we should be as opposed to where we are. You know, I, uh, obviously it's, a lot of this is driven by uh, commercial interests and, yeah. and, and, you know, people want to make a living for themselves, and, and I don't have a problem with that. It's just, you know, if I'm saying do this, and somebody else is saying do that, you know, just keep saying do this, but don't go after them and say you shouldn't be doing that or that's crap. You know, how, you know, how do you know? Um, and I think, you know, if we're going to advance things, we have to go, what do we think is working? Let's get research to kind of look at it. If research says, no, oh, maybe not, you know, you know, then we can look somewhere else, but it seems like the industry is driving things, and then research is ten steps behind. And you know, who knows? I <laughs> I think that's that's where I'm at right now. Is that I think I have an idea of what works. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, it's a lot simpler than what most people think works. I think. Yeah, and what would you say are some good things then in the industry? The good things is is that there's a lot of people working in the industry. Like I think you know. People are aware that yes, we have to have organized training programs. Yes, we have to be careful about overtraining and overloading, and, and looking at recovery and sleep and diet and and all of these things. And, and you know, uh, some people get down on things like GPS technology, but the whole purpose of GPS technology in sports is to find out how much we're actually doing and quantify it and go, hey, maybe this is too much, or we need a little more of this. And I have no problem with that. Um, and, and I embrace it. Like I, I like looking at the data and going, oh, okay. Nine times out of ten, it pretty much confirms what we already know. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think there's a problem with that. But it's just when people, you know, I've heard stories about people buying GPS units in NCAA and just using them as a recruiting tool. Like, oh, this is what we use, and then they don't actually use it, and they think, you know, that's a problem. Hmm. Um, but, but like anything, um, you can have a tool and. You can say you're using it, but if you're not using it right, then it doesn't make a difference. So that's that's you know those are some of the things that I think we could you know use better and and be transparent about it and say, look, this is pretty much what we're using it for. The whole idea, and I think they do this more in the um, AFL, was the idea is like let's find out what works using GPS and all these other tools, and, and then we come up with a, a, an approach that works better. And then we don't have to use them as much. Now we know that we can only get this much mileage out of each player. Uh, beyond that, they get injured, they get accumulated fatigue, you know, all of these things. And then, great, now we know. Let's move on. And, and let's do some monitoring, you know, lighter monitoring after that. And I think that's where we want to be. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, kind of where, where I'm at, like, uh, personally, and I think you're kind of touching on it too, is that particularly younger coaches 
is the fact that there's such a you know there's such a social media output nowadays with Facebook and Instagram yes. and Twitter and all that that they can get very confused because there's just so much information and lately over the last year or two I've actually reverted back to reading textbooks and grounding myself in principles and scientific principles and things like reading a textbook on biology reading a textbook on physiology reading a textbook on sports science reading a textbook on functional medicine and medicine itself because what that will help you do in my opinion is give you a far better bullshit meter because then if you ha if you're grounded in scientific principles or what are currently accepted as scientific principles well then you know then that science is going to be able to guide your training process and then you know what's bullshit and what's not bullshit so as you were saying like when guys are saying i oh, use this or this exercise or that exercise it's kind of like well does that abide by the principles that abide to everyone like we all know for instance the training principles like specificity and overload and fatigue management and variation and accommodation and you know we know that all those principles abide to every individual so i think that people just need to be grounded more in scientific principles and that's coming from an individual like myself who i i still have not done a third level education and i kind of did everything backwards i kind of got into the trenches first and it's only now i'm starting to realize god i need to go back and get a more of an appreciation for scientific principles which will help me give me a better foundation to what I'm actually doing as a coach. And then, so if you were to turn around and say, Robbie, why do you do that? I can actually defend it, like saying, well, this is why we do it. And here's the here's at least a possible theory based off training principles to support it, even if, say, the research might necessarily be there. Yeah, and that's that's all we're asking for people to do is like, you know, have a good reason for what, what you're doing and yeah. also have an open mind, which it sounds like, you know, you have and, um, you know, we can't know it all, um, and that's why we have to have a network of people we can fall back on and go, hey, what do you think, or, you know, am I doing this right, uh, yeah. in your opinion? Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the Alvar Meal approach. It's like, I, I, you always have to check yourself. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. And, there, you know, that's the sign of a good coach. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Derek, if, if I was supposed to question then to you, what is your, you know, your training philosophy or your training principles, how would you answer that? Um, you know, trying not to be too convoluted, but I think the idea for me, the philosophy for me is, um, tr again, the simplification side, trying to minimize the excess and trying to figure out what actually works. And sometimes what actually works may be something that is low intensity or something that is peripheral or, mm -hmm. you know, and it has a role, but you have to separate all your elements and go, okay, I know this works and don't tie yourself to any one exercise or mode like um and going even back to that olympic lifting uh concept that we we had talked about off air was um you know i i love doing olympic lifting i love you know i did power cleans for the last 25 years or however long and now i'm finding out that we don't always need to do that uh and there's certain athletes who don't respond to it uh and there's certain applications for it so my philosophy is a very, I'm not going to say transient, but it's very flexible in terms of I'm looking at for the stimulatory effect of things. I'm looking for yes. what provides the best adaptation that moves me forward. Um, and sometimes it's going to be a hand cleaner, a power cleaner, a snatch. You know, I, I had a chance to work with an Olympic lifter who was in the, the 2012 Olympics, got a bronze medal. And, and what I found out about her was that she's a great Olympic lifter, you know. She's not so good at other things, right? But, you know, she is good at what she's supposed to do. Now, 
does that mean that Olympic lifting has to be done for everybody? No, you know, she, she kind of proved it to me that it's not the one answer because I had her do some things that I thought would help and it didn't transfer. Her Olympic lifting abilities didn't transfer to what I thought would work. Yeah. So, you know, have an open mind, have a lot of different tools and apply them as necessary and, and keep things really simple. And that's, that's, that's sort of my philosophy, but it's kind of like, one of, again, one of my influences is Bruce Lee. Um, yeah, I never met the guy, obviously, but um, this idea, like there's a, in one of his movies, Enter the Dragon, you know, the guy comes up and says, what's your style? And he goes, that's the art of fighting without fighting. And then he sends the guy on a boat onto an island and leaves him there and doesn't have to fight him. But that, that's, have you seen that? I actually haven't. I, I've watched a documentary on Bruce Lee because I am fascinated by the man, but I've never had a chance to watch that full movie. Yeah, watch that movie, just for that scene. And, and I think, I, one, of, one of my friends, uh, Giuseppe Guelli, um, you know, I've had a lot of the chance to talk with him lately. He was out in Vancouver, and that's what he's finding. He works in, you know, uh, high levels of uh, European soccer and, and also ice hockey. And what we're trying to do and, and what he's confirmed is that you have to do less now, especially for these athletes who are so overcommitted in terms of games and practices and all that. Yeah. And so we're trying to, you know, the art of training without training almost and I think uh, it seems counterintuitive but and if you're a strength coach you're like I have to train people we got to train more it's all about training but you know the work I'm doing with the NFL is the strength coaches don't have time to train they're not given the time to train they're restricted by the collective bargaining agreement so what is their role they can have five weeks to train in the off season in season all hell breaks loose training camp all hell breaks loose guys are you know just so exhausted uh, week to week so what are you going to do we're going to do the least amount possible the minimum effective dose to advance them but not create more accumulated fatigue and then we're going to come in with all these recovery measures you know to try to bring them back and, and, and get rid of all the crap um, so that's you know I think it does depend a bit on what, what your circumstances are what environment you're in but at the pro level Training, you know, doing training without training seems to be, you know, a good answer right now. But um, so even for me, I'm trying to recalibrate what my role is given the specific situation I'm in. And I think be flexible, keep it simple, um, and you know, just make sure you're still moving forward. That's kind of my philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Nearly every top coach you speak to, they nearly always use the phrase minimum effective dose like so many of them say the same thing over and over so i mean it's kind of you know as you were saying you, you kind of speak to all these different individuals and realize sort of that they're coming nearly to the same place as yourself they're, they're kind of reaching that same apex at the top of the hierarchy but uh in, in just in terms then Derek, so that's kind of a a, a, a general sort of sense of, of you know your thought process on training you know just the minimum effective dose to, to get an adaptation with the organism um, in terms of like let's say assessments or testing or let's say like I, I show up at Simon Fraser I'm you know whatever I'm at, just a track athlete it's day one what, what do you do do you take me in do you do, you do any body fat tests do you do any speed tests do you do any screening like what, what determines what you're going to do with me as an athlete um, I, you know again I'm going to keep it pretty simple and mundane but you know a lot of the time you got to talk to the athlete and find out okay what have have you done? Yeah. What kind of training have you done? Um, you know, what, what's your injury history? Um, you know, what are your performances? And, you know, 
and, and even get a sense of their personality, I think. Um, that's, that's probably more critical than running them through a 40-yard dash or vertical jump. And, you know, I, we do all those things, you know, depending on, on the situation, depending on the time of the year. Um, so this sort of assessment of the athlete without having them do anything, I think is pretty important. Yeah. And people, you know, for some reason, they won't, they won't talk about that stuff. Like, you know, everybody likes the cut and drive functional movement screen and they get a number and, hey, I got a number, like, which, you know, for the most part doesn't mean anything, right? There's no context there. Yeah. But now when you have context, you know, talking to them and finding out more about them and what they've done, it makes it easier to make decisions moving forward. The other part of it is, um, for me, is I want to see them move. I want to see them move when, you know, whether it's in their sport, whether it's in something as simple as a linear sprint, you know, maybe a few drills, you know, maybe a jumping movement, a throwing movement, um, you know, maybe something in the weight room. And that's going to give me a lot of information. And, you know, you want to have your quantitative assessments, but I like the qualitative assessments too because, you know, if we're talking about injury, somebody could do really well in a quantitative assessment in terms of, you know, they jump really high or they run really fast, but, you know, maybe something else in their movement that you see or something that they told you about, you know, as, as far as in, injury history goes, it's going to give you more information to move, move them forward and be successful and not run into problems with injuries. And, you know, so it's, you know, I, I'm not going to say I, I use one method to assess people, but it's kind of a general approach again where we watch what people do, we talk to them, put them through a few tests, you know, we make sure that whatever test we put them through, it's, you know, done in a controlled manner and it's consistently done over time and rechecked. We're not going to change up the, you know, change up the test because, you know, what's the whole point of doing a test? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's, you know, uh, and again, I don't want to sound, you know, kind of wishy-washy, but um, no, this I, sort of big I, picture assessment of athletes is very important to me. I personally, um, I personally felt that was, that, that made the whole show, that answer, you know, because again, as you said, most people jump straight to these, and I, I'd be guilty myself straight into like you know I, I would you know I, I, I utilize the FMS for, for the movement standpoint and then for my performance tests and I'll utilize uh, you know I utilize you know, the standard tests you know for linear speed and multi-direction speed and the jump profile and strength testing but I loved that you said that you were just like I like to just get to know the athlete first get to know the personality you know who they are as a person so like I mean that was a great answer because I was kind of like you know shit that's way more important than anything else we could do really it is, because the other part of it is, is you get introduced to an athlete, and if you're dealing with 300 athletes, it's tough, but if you get introduced to an athlete, uh, and the first thing you do is like, okay, what's your name, okay, do a run here, guess what, the athlete feels like a piece of meat, you know, or a number, and yeah. and that's not good, you know, I mean, you, you, part of every all, all the coaching stuff is developing a relationship, right, yeah. and, uh, um, you know, I, I had an interesting experience in watching the medicals at the NFL Combine, and guess what? You know, you're a name, you're a number, you come in, they measure you, they look at all your MRIs and your X-rays, and, you know, does your joint move this way properly, and what injuries have you had? And, and, you know, pretty impersonal, and, and this is all done before they have to do their performance tests. Yeah. It's, it's, and, funny, it's funny you say that because uh, 
I recently just watched, and like, you know, obviously people know I'm Irish, so, but I, I, I would have, you know, I have a basic knowledge and understanding of the NFL and American football. I've actually, I've actually friends back home who are obsessed with American football. Like, they know just as much as any American would. But uh, I just, awesome. I watched the, uh, the this documentary called Getting, I was Getting Ready for the Combine or something. It was, it was like on this AOL, it was like a 10 part series, so like just like these 10 minute videos. But, they, uh, they were showing these three American football players and they were getting prepared down at Exos with Nick Winkleman, I know Nick well, and there's a, there's a clip where Nick says that to him, he's like, guys, you gotta realize you're, you're gonna be treated like a piece of meat, they're gonna be poking and prodding, you're just a number, they don't wanna know who you are, and he's like, then you have to mentally get ready to do these tests after all that really mentally draining, poking and prodding, and is this guy ready to go, is, is his knee okay, is his, is his back fine, like, and so, you, like, you could just even, you can just even see like that if you do start that if you if you just get an athlete straight away and put them into that like it's it's so impersonal and as you said you, you said perfectly there like they just feel like they're a piece of meat and that's the worst thing you can do so i mean your answer of just speaking to the athlete getting to know the athlete like even just asking them you know previous injuries what are your previous bests you know i like just right now i'm just like shit like i like it's funny not like, and it's not that I don't do that like because what I actually do back home is I always have a, a the first thing we always do is sit down and have a chat for 30 minutes but it's just funny that when speaking to another coach I'm just like what assessments do you use and you were like well first of all I'll talk with them <laughs> so yeah which again you know it may throw some people but you know you, you, you know and I'm sure you've learned over experience is that that you know, these are the things that people don't tell you. These are the things that you learn just oh, sort of organically. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, yeah, that's the best advice I think we could pass on to anyone. Is like you know, just you know, be a good person. Be you know, um, and 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 the other part was uh, that Giuseppe Guelli was telling me about was like you know, if you know, everybody thinks about we got to hammer athletes, we got to make them feel uncomfortable, we got to you know. I don't really buy into that, you know, mental toughness, all this stuff. Like, people are mentally tough or they're not. But if we provide a safe environment for them to train and prepare, it builds their confidence and it makes them resilient in the long run. You know, if we're constantly inundating them with stress, you know, chronic stress and, like, making them feel like they don't have the confidence or security, that is more damaging than building somebody up, you know, and, and providing a safe environment. So, I mean, that's part of it is you getting them comfortable with you and your approach and, you know, and then they'll express like if they, they, they have the trust now and confidence to go to you and say, look, I, this happened to me and I, I'm not sure if I'm ready to train. I just want to, you know, get your thoughts on it. And now you have a relationship that allows you to move forward safely. Yeah, so. it's, it's like I've seen videos with uh, Dan Fah and one of them's on YouTube and uh, like he talks about this idea of that the, you know one of the first things you need to do with your athlete is, is to get them to trust you and he even used the word to get them to love you like you know to, to, to get into a place where there's actually a bond and a love between you and them because he just said otherwise you're never going to help them facilitate or you're never going to help to facilitate them reach their highest levels of performance so he and he was really trying to hammer that home before he got into any of the technical uh, discussions on training itself, you know, he was like, you gotta, you gotta be able to get your athlete to a place where they have one hundred percent trust and love in you. Yeah, and I think those are the coaches that are going to have the better numbers in terms of success rates, right? Yeah. You know, you're always going to have the coach who treats people like crap and burns them out, and and he'll, you know, that or he or she will have one good athlete that breaks through, and oh, that, you know, this is fantastic. We have one guy that did it out of a thousand, but I'm looking at the the guy who has. 
you know, a 90% success rate, even if they don't have a world champion, even if they have a few medalists here and there, but 90% of their athletes have reached their potential. Um, that's more exciting to me than the one guy who has, you know, the world record holder but has nobody else and a whole bunch of broken athletes. Just moving on there to, uh, to talk maybe about more program design and periodization. In terms of how you structure a, a session, um, now you can choose whatever sport you want, be track or, or football, you know, how, how, are you, how are you doing that? How are you structuring a session? An individual session will, uh, you know, I, I'm like everybody, like you'll plan it out and you'll go, okay, I want, you know, I got to do a certain warm-up, I have to, um, you know, have some preparatory things, you know, whether it's, like you say, we're working with a sprinter, Your, you know, a typical session would be their full warm-up. It could take anywhere from 30 minutes to a half an hour, or 30 minutes to 45 minutes, maybe longer, depending on the athlete and uh, their experience, but, you know, you have a warm-up. I don't like over-structuring the warm-up, um, if, especially for individual athletes, because it's so individual, right? Mm. Um, you'll let them do things that they feel comfortable with, and again, it's going back to this, let's create a, a trusting relationship, let's create a, some autonomy for the athlete, um, and then when we're ready to go, we're ready to go, and you know, they have, you have that trust with them that, yeah, you've warmed up enough, let's get going. A little easier for individual, actually a lot e easier for individual athletes because that's that's what they have to you know deal with on a day to day basis when they get to competition. They have to be ready to go. Um, and then you may do something like you know starts and you know plan a certain number of starts, plan a certain number of upright runs, you know maximal speed runs or you know speed endurance runs, and and, and that's all planned in, which is great. The my problem with the periodization right now is that. Um, people spend all this time planning and this is the plan and we're going to go forward with this plan and we're going to do everything in this plan and we're going to be successful. Mm. To which my reply would, how the hell would you know if this is going to be successful? Like there's so many variables, there's so many things that come up uh, in the process of training. So I, I like to go forward and go like, hey, this is what I thought, this is what I think is a good plan. I don't know, like experience tells me that this kind of works. But, you know, on this day with you, we may do 60% of this. We may do 30% of it. It all depends on what I see and the feedback you give me, whether it's what I, you know, the feedback, visual feedback, the performance feedback, what the stopwatch says, um, what you tell me, you know, what the weather lets us do. And I think we have to operate on those parameters. We can't say we have to do this workout mm. as written. And I see this in team sport all the time, this sort of dogmatic approach to, um, this is the practice plan, we're going to do this. And it's like, you can see shit isn't working on the field. You're like, this is not working, the players are not getting it, and they're still trying to hammer it through, hammer it through, because I planned this for 10 minutes and we're going to do it until we get it done. Yeah. It's like, that's not productive, and I think it applies to everything in training and, and motor learning and and adaptation and, and you know we have to be more flexible in dealing with the circumstances at the, the time we're, we're doing it yeah yeah it's, um, it, so it, it's, go ahead. it's funny you say that too because it sounds like I'm bringing up Dan Faft a lot but I have this audio with Dan Faft speaking about it and um, he, he touches on this topic too of he'd often have reporters come down and watch him train his athletes and he gave the example of you know his athletes were down to do something like 18 starts one day and and after 10 he stopped and he said, okay, we're done for the day. And people came up afterwards and said, here, on the workout sheet, Dan, it says they were down to do a lot more. Why did you stop? And Dan's like, did you see repetition eight and nine? Yeah, they weren't doing any more. 
Uh, so as in come to that concept that you need to be flexible within your within your training. Your, you know, your training program is a guideline. It's not it's not gospel. Yeah, and and um, you know the the volume issue is is significant. Where uh, if the volume is too high, it's going to ruin everything. And if you go past that point and you you know you you go past start number ten and you do a couple more and somebody gets injured, you you can't go back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's really important to, to have this sort of meter in your head that, that can kind of balance things out and go, okay, we've done enough. And if the athlete doesn't have to agree with you. Um, and people think, well, if you don't make them do more, then they'll get lazy. And No, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. If anything, you build a bond of trust with the athlete. Now, the athlete's like, wow, okay, they're really watching what I'm doing. They really care about the quality of work and, you know, my ability to train hard the next day, like, it's, you know, it may be counterintuitive for some people, but it does work. Hmm. Just uh, a topic I really wanted to get your opinion on and have a discussion on was this idea of do field-based athletes need to, uh, need to improve and need to develop uh, absolute speed? Uh, and this is something I've changed my, my thoughts on completely. I would have been a very, you know, field-based sports is mainly just acceleration dominant, yada, yada, yada. But then I began to realize, you know, when we study, uh, when we study like, you know, s um, s the training of speed theory or yeah, training, training theory on speed, it, it's always coming from a track background. And, you know, and they, and they talk about that speed continuum where, you know, you have your acceleration phase and your transition phase and your absolute speed phase and the different strength qualities that correlate to each one of those phases. And the thing is though, that acceleration in track, you know, you're coming out of that, that deep, deep three-point position where like, you know, you've really had to come over your body weight and all that. And then I began to realize, but in field-based sports, you're standing upright. A lot of times you're jogging into it. And then I, I've, had, I've seen some research and I've also, I have a friend who does master's thesis in this where he actually found out that in field-based sports, a lot of field-based athletes, because they start their acceleration in a very upright posture or a lot, or a lot more upright than you would say, a track athlete, they actually reach their what what is relative to them as as uh, absolute speed. And if they don't actually hit absolute speed velocity every time, they get into a posture or a running posture very similar to absolute speed. And then there's also the 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 other uh, the other thing to think about that obviously absolute speed is the most amount of force that humans can produce in the least amount of time. So you're actually developing more neurological output, and of course that's after injury reduction, that's our main role as coaches, is, is to get the most amount of force uh, produced in the least amount of time and increase that biological output. So I personally have changed, so for me I think that it is worthwhile doing absolute speed, but I'd love to get your thought on it. Yeah, you bring up some interesting points about the start, and I had this discussion about somebody about starting blocks and why do we use starting blocks, and, and isn't it easier just to run out of a standing start? And I, I said, yeah, I think so, because I think starting blocks started because you know, back in the day, they were running on, you know, essentially dirt or cinders, yeah. and if you did a standing start, you would slip, okay, so they dug holes in the cinders, if you ever watched Chariots of Fire, they got a little shovel, they dug, okay, and then we're going to start from this down position so we don't slip, okay, great, and then when they had synthetic tracks, they're like, well, we can't dig holes in the synthetic tracks now, so maybe we'll put, like, some sort of block there behind it, right, and, and you start asking yourself, like, are we starting from a low position because it's better? Or are we starting from a low position because of some circumstance, you know, whatever? You know, and I think it's more of a circumstance. And Alan Wells, I think, for the longest time did standing 
does, and we're still beating people, getting out faster. And then they said, Alan, you got to get out of the blocks because everybody, you know, you know, we think you're trying to pull a fast one here, and we want it standardized. And now they have blocks because they can detect when you false start because you apply pressure on the block of, you know, signal goes off. And yeah. So is doing a three-point or four-point stance better? That would be a good study. I don't even know if that study's been done, but you know, maybe a standing start is better and gets you up to top speed faster. You know, that's you know, so that's an entirely separate question that you brought up, which is which is kind of cool. Um, but it does go back to this fact that you know we should be doing a variety of starts, standing, down, whatever. And there's a reason to do down starts or from a low position because it you know, uses different muscles and it's you know creates more of a power uh, effect or maximum strength power effect. But for me, I think I would love for more athletes to do farther sprints into their maximal velocity zone. Yeah, me too. Yeah, no, yeah. And there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, and I, 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 I don't know who I was talking to, but they were talking about uh, um, how soccer, European football, they don't do any sprinting in training. And, you know, I go, well, why not? He says, because they're afraid of getting hurt. Yeah. You know, and that's the main reason. And that's not a good reason. You know, I don't want to sound like Seinfeld, but that's not a good reason. Um, but, you know, it, it's a chicken and egg thing. Well, the reason they can't sprint and they get hurt is because you don't sprint, right? And so you got to start sprinting. And then you can't, you know, be sprinting full 60s the first time we get out. we got to build it up gradually, maybe a couple of 10s and 20s, and then, and then build it out. But you have to sprint fast to get faster. And then... Uh, talking about this quality of like um, stimulation and, and trying to um, create more force, and we know at maximum velocity you create more vertical force. We want to get there, so we want to get to that point where we're maxing out and creating this 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 incredible vertical force production, because we know that transfers to other qualities. And if you don't get that stimulation, you're going to miss out, and you can't get that from lifting weights. And you you might be able to get a little bit little bit of it from plyometrics. But if you just do the sprint, you'll get all of these qualities. It'll transfer to your sport. That one time when you have to reach maximal velocity and run out beyond 30, 40 meters, you're prepared, and you won't get hurt. And it, you know, it, it builds momentum. And, you know, and, and, and these are the adaptations we want. We don't want to shy away from it because we didn't prepare ourselves properly for it. Like it, it, so it, it boggles my mind why people don't sprint more. Um, and even Charlie would talk about if I can sprint maximal velocity and I can create, you know, however many, you know, pounds of force down into the ground, guess what? That helps with direction change. That helps with other qualities, you know, in terms of jumping. And, you know, so if we can get to that point with sprinting, which, and we create a safe environment, we're going to get all these benefits from it. But a lot of people don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. And just, just to kind of maybe clarify my question a bit more, like uh, when with regards to it's just purely acceleration development, I hundred percent agree that like we we do a a bunch of different starts and generally the closer we get to season, the more sort of if you want to say sport specific it gets in terms of the position we're in and then implementing the sport uh, equipment into the into the start. Obviously, when we're in more of a GPP phase, we're just purely focusing more on the output of the acceleration. But um, and the other thing too is that the other thing I nearly add to that question is too is that. Again, people, as I was saying in the question, they, they kind of take the theory of training speed purely from track and field. And even if you got a field-based athlete to get to get into that deep position, like that deep 
three point position and sprint out like a sprinter. Let's say it was let's say it was a sprinter versus a field based athlete on the track. I mean the the the, the field based athlete is just nowhere near uh, at the has nowhere near the strength levels of that elite track athlete. So even that their distribution of their whole hundred meter sprint is going to be completely different. Like they'll they'll hit their top end speed sooner. Their acceleration phase will be let will be a lot shorter. So like there are a lot, so many things that need to be taken into consideration when asking the question, you know, should field-based athletes train uh, absolute speed or max velocity sprinting? And as I said before, I would have been a real, no, no, if you read anything, field sports just acceleration dominant. But, you know, these factors of, well, they're usually standing upright in their sport. They're usually jogging into their acceleration. Therefore, they, their acceleration phase is shorter. They hit their max velocity phase a lot quicker. They get into the upright posture sooner. And you brought up a great point with those soccer players. I mean... Uh, it was actually in David Joyce's book where the the Liverpool strength conditioning coach was was he kind of he posed that question. He's like, you know, how much sprinting should we do in the off season? Because, uh, you know, and it's it was this kind of question of, you know, load them just enough to make sure that their hamstrings were ready for top end speed, but not so much that it might produce an injury. So it's a very interesting question as well. Yeah, it is a, it is a balance. It's a, it's a tough balance, and um, you know, you're always trying to just do the best. Can but but you want to introduce those stressors at some point and have them in there long enough so that it does carry forward. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, it was funny. I was asked this question yesterday. Someone said to me, "Give me your elevator speech," and like so, essentially, they're like, "Give me your whole philosophy and training." And it's my whole philosophy is a one-liner: environment dictates the organism's expression. So if yes. if, if that's going to happen in your environment, you have to prepare your athletes for it. And that's why, again, like you know this too. A lot of coaches are a bit like, ah, I don't know, really know if I should do that with the athletes. It's kind of like, well, listen, it's going to happen in their sport, and it's negligent on your part not to get them ready for it. Yes, yes. And, and the other part of doing everything from a three-point stance or a low stance, it, it takes a lot of energy to get out of that. So that energy burn affects the rest of the run or the, the whole set or you know how many runs you can do. And this was something I learned from Charlie is like, um, do, do some block starts and then let's get away from it and then everything else we're doing is from a standing start because I want them, they did the starts, I want them to now express themselves in the maximum velocity or the latter part of acceleration so we take away the tougher start position so that we have more energy to use for the running mm. um, and that's something that people should know is that if you're doing everything from a low position all the time you know, there's a continuum that it's going to affect, it's going to affect your energy at the latter portion you know, so you know make that distinction and, and you can do some starts you don't have to start every run that way and, and in most sports like you say like even in the in the nfl like a lot of people are getting away from three-point starts you know even on the line because it it puts them in a bad position to be ready yeah. um but you know uh we seem to learn the hard way and we're all we're all bound by tradition and this is how we always have done it why would we do it any different and then, you know that's something we need to get away from too it's like what works so the, the next question, and, and we spoke about this offline, and just before I, I give you a chance to, to answer it, I'm just going to read two paragraphs from your chapter in High Performance Training for Sports, which I have to say, Derek, what your chapter, and I'm not just saying this because you're online, people are like, yeah, yeah, whatever, but it, it was one of my, <laughs> they're, they're going to be like, he's such a lick there, but, it, but it, it honestly was one of my favorite chapters, again, because I suppose I'd read so much of Charlie's stuff, and I just love the way you kind of worded it, like you, you kind of worded Charlie's work in your sort of words, and it nearly kind of it's it's nearly how I would express Charlie's Charlie's sort of top processes in my mind. But I'm just going to read these two chapters. It's about 
uh, how too much Olympic lifting may interfere with, with the central nervous system in with regards to maximal effort sprinting. So you say, although Olympic weightlifting movements such as the clean and jerk and snatch provide significant benefits in terms of taxing the central nervous system, an athlete can suffer from too much of a good thing. Athletes who spend too much time and energy perfecting these lifts may find their sprinting abilities suffer due to the significant demand placed on all the major muscle groups and the central nervous system, similar to the impact of maximal effort sprinting. The notion is supported by the fact that many, if not all, of the fastest sprinters in the world do not demonstrate exceptional abilities in Olympic weightlifting movements. It has been common to see sprinters demonstrate impressive feats of strength in what would be deemed less specific movements such as squat, deadlift, bench press. These exercises do not reflect many of the sport-specific qualities of sprinting but can involve heavy loads that elicit high levels of muscle recruitment and significantly stretch the central nervous system. However, they do not overlap too heavily into the domain of actual sprinting, creating excessive stress, as creating issues of excessive CNS fatigue. I thought those two paragraphs were absolutely outstanding, so I just want to compliment you on that piece of writing. <laughs> but uh, maybe just for the listeners, uh, explain what exactly you're on. I, 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 I think I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but for the listeners, maybe speak about what exactly is the message you're trying to get across there. Yeah, you. I mean, it basically comes down to we have a finite ability to handle stress. You know, I mean, and it all it all comes from the one bucket. Yeah, you know, um, you know, you, you can you can you can reason with anybody. You know, somebody that go works at the bank or somebody like they have a finite ability to handle stress. So, so if as long as we move forward with that concept, that we have to be very selective about the stressors we use, mm -hmm. and um, you know. It's nice to have uh, all these exercises that look really cool, and you know, again, I, I, you know, I have lifting shoes, and I, you know, have videos of me doing lifts that I'm very proud of. Um, but I, I, I explained this to somebody. I said, you know, when I came out of high school, I think I ran like eleven three or eleven twenty four in the hundred meters. I wasn't a great hundred meter runner. I did mostly do long jump and triple jump, and then. I went through university and they taught me all these great lifts and I went from doing no power cleans to I think doing 140 kilos at like, you know, whatever, I, I weighed like 169 pounds. So I'm like, yeah, this is great. I go run 100 meters and I run 1114. So I improved by a tenth of a second, you know, uh, and, and you know, and all my, you know, <laughs> right there I'm like, oh, that doesn't seem like a good payoff. Um, you know, and if I were to do it all over again, I would have spent more time on sprinting, quite honestly, if I wanted to be a good sprinter. So um, you don't want to, you know, rob your central nervous system of, of, of energy that you could be using to be doing something better. And I'm not, again, I, again I'm a big fan of Olympic lifting, and uh, I had this conversation with the, you know, Olympic lifting is great, but there's a reason that Olympic lifters are Olympic lifters. It's because typically they're not good at anything else, right? So, hey, go do Olympic lifting. You can't play American football, right? So, um, so I think we have to go falling in love with something that could potentially hurt us in the long run. And, and you know, the, you can call it data, but anecdotally, I do not know a high-level sprinter who has great clean and jerks, you know, uh, if you have one, like, let us know, but it's not going to be Usain Bolt, Asafa Powell, Tyson Gay, you know, it's not going to be these guys, um, so, you know, that's a big take-home lesson for, I think, anybody in any sport, uh, even at the NFL level, like, you know, some of the best receivers, I don't think they Olympic lift, if they do, they do it really poorly, and, and, and 
understand that they have to be good in what they need to be good in. Um, and the further we take them away from that, it will affect their output in what they need to be good in. And, and mm. you know, that's that's the you know that's the thing with a lot of trainers is they fall in love with what they're good at teaching. So, and maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm to blame for that too. To a bit, I'm at fault because I like to make people run and sprint. But guess what? That transfers really well in most sports. Yeah. You know, um, you know, we've had guys who are great Olympic lifters. You know, you put them on the football field, they don't know what the hell to do out there. You know, they 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 were not as productive as they could have been. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have spent more time teaching them about football. I don't know. Yeah. But that that that's kind of where that all came from. And I, I have a graph, a slide. I should I'll send it to you, and it just shows like all the all the hundred meter runners that I've worked with. You know, the ones that were mediocre who ran ten five, ten six, ten seven, they were really good at Olympic lifting and squatting and stuff. You know, the ones that ran and you know. 10 flat, 10 one, 9 seven, whatever that, that I had a chance to work with. But they were good at bench press, mm. and that's you know that was interesting. That was really when I put this graph together. I presented it at uh, Dave Tenney's conference in December, and he looked at it and he said, "Yeah, that's pretty much the same for our soccer players. The really good ones are just you know not good at the, the complicated lifts and not pushing a lot of weight, but they're good soccer players and they're fast. Yeah, yeah. So, again, they're they're expending less energy outside of their their sport." Exactly, and that's that's critical. We get so caught up in ourselves, and like we want to make them great trainers. Mm. I want to make them great athletes on the field, and I, I think that's a huge distinction that we have to, you know, people have to understand. Well, I think that's because you know, in, in more of the Western part of the world, we've isolated strength and conditioning out of sports training. And I remember when I was a young coach, I used to try to read the Russian stuff. Whereas nowadays, I. I thanks to the likes of James Smith who distilled a lot of that for me I can easily read a lot more of the Russian stuff now because I have a different foundation and paradigm of, of where I'm of where I'm coming from now but if you read any of the Russian stuff never is the term strength and conditioning used ever it's always sports training sports training sports mastery you know general yes. physical, general physical preparation specific physical preparation never do they use strength like and like you talk to any of these Russian sports scientists they're like what is strength and conditioning? They're like, I don't, I don't understand that. And you go, oh, you mean, you mean the means to an end? <laughs> it's, it gives what they're trying to say, like you know. Whereas we've taken it out as a pure isolated thing, uh, you know, and kept it completely separate. And like as we've talked about over the course of the show, it's all about stressing the organism and getting the adaptation, and then letting the organism recover to elicit that adaptation. Because again, it's it's all all that stress is coming from the same bucket, but. It's it's I think that's one one area that, that 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 has led to a lot of confusion. You know, it's like that there's strength and conditioning, then there's your sport, and it's really like no, it's all one thing. It's all coming from the one bucket. It's all stressing the same organism, and um, so again, we need to get back to a more holistic outlook on, on things. Or that would be sort of what I yeah, absolutely. You bring up a really good point there about this. You know, it's it's kind of separate, and it shouldn't be. And and, and you know, and it and I don't want to. You know, say anything negative about different programs, but people are putting up YouTube videos about this is how we train and this is you know this is what we do and we're tough and you know and you're like this is ridiculous. Most of this stuff is ridiculous. Like, let's see your results on the field. Yeah. You know, this is totally separate. This is you guys are making this separate. You're making it an animal in itself, and you know, let's just watch your game film or your you know what you're doing on the track or you know we don't need to see this. I don't need to see it. Yeah, you just you said a great little quote there. You're you're making this an animal in itself. You, you just get these coaches, and all they're worried about is the you know the squat bench and deadlift and clean numbers, and it's all like, but 
what are your results like on the field? And it was, in fairness, it was Chad Wesley Smith who who really brought this to light for me. Like you know, uh, I've interviewed Chad on the podcast and I've read some of his material, and just he just said something so profound one day. He's just like, sports skill is king. He's like, you you can do you can do without every other thing but your sport. If yes. if your sport is hurling in Ireland, you have to play hurling. If it's yes. American football, it's American football. That's, that's the one thing. It's sprinting and sprinting. It's the one thing you cannot sacrifice. And because now we have this isolated field of, and I'm doing, you know, the, the, the two fingers, the strength and conditioning coaches, you know, we, we've completely, as you, you just said perfectly there, we, you know, created a completely separate monster where it's like, you know, you've you got to get your bench up and your deadlift up and your squat up and your clean up. And it's kind of like, do they really... Like, I mean, how are they actually performing in the sport where it really matters? Yeah. You know, Charlie would always say, like, who cares? Like, who cares what you, you know, you're doing over here? Like, people would say to him, like, oh, what did Ben Johnson do in his vertical jump? Or what did he do yeah, for this? Yeah, what did he yeah. do for that? And he's like, I don't know. I don't need, what the hell do I need to know that for? He ran 9, you know, 9, 7, 9. Like, yeah. that's pretty good, you know? <laughs> um, there you, you know, so he was, he was, I mean, he was great for cutting through the bullshit yeah. and just saying, I don't need to know that. I don't need to know what he scores in the FMS. Like, the guy runs fast. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think, and I don't want, again, I don't want to step on toes and, and, and ruin people's careers and stuff like that. But come on, let's get to the point here. Yeah. Let's, you know, um, you know, and, but again, going back to that, that, that quote that Brian Dew had from the Celtics about, you know, we have to stress the organism at some point, right? And it doesn't mean, you know, they have to do all these exercises, but you have to stress them and then let them play. But that intensity is more important than the volume of all the other crap. Yeah. And if you don't have that stressor, um, then you might as well go home. And, and look at, I mean, the crazy thing for me is look at all these catastrophic injuries we're having. We're guys having fracturing, you know, fracturing tibias when they land, when they should just land, right? Awesome, so something yeah. is going on. You know, Achilles tendons are popping like unprecedented, you know, number uh, AC non-contact ACLs. You know, guy takes a step, he blows out his ACL. What is going on? Yeah, and just just for the listeners and anyone who's listening to this podcast knows, I don't want anyone thinking that I'm diminishing or that I'm belittling the importance of, and I'll just call it strength and conditioning for now. I, I prefer the term physical preparation. I'm, I'm not belittling the the belittling physical preparation. Of course, it's a huge component. Of of athletic preparation, and um, what I what I am saying though is that to keep in mind that it's a means to an end and not the end in itself. And what we're seeing now, and Derek is alluding to it too, is that you're getting strength coaches, and all they care about is the numbers in the weight room. And of course, okay, hitting certain numbers in the weight room, yes, are very important in regards to just specific indicators. Um, and we know that there is a certain amount of transfer, but there is a point where that transfer diminishes and actually gets to a point where it starts to negate sporting performance as we spoke about with the olympic lifting for instance so it's just to bear that in mind that you know again it's, it needs to be a holistic approach it's one organism everything is going into that one funnel of stress and we just yes. we need to be looking at it more like that and you know I, I think you would agree with that Derek. yeah like there, i was reading this article about i can't remember the guy's name but he had like you know a thousand pound bench press and he was talking about his workouts and guess what his workouts consisted of bench press bench right press, yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, because that's what he needs to do to get a thousand pound bench press, apparently. Yeah, exactly. And if I do arm curls <laughs> and if I do squats, then guess what? It takes energy away from it. Like that's a perfect example. But so if you're if you're a strength coach, and you're like, we have to have big bench press, we have to have big squat. We have, well, guess what? It could take away from them being a great football player, or a great soccer player. Or what, you know, so it's so apparent 
me that we have to balance our approach out and we have to not lose focus of what the actual goal is, which is to make them a better athlete and protect them out there. But, you know, and, uh, you're, you're right. Like, we're not here to, to piss and moan about strength coaches, strength and conditioning in the field. We're here to come up with better solutions, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's another good point. Like, and personally, I like to think that I'm one of these individuals that if I do have sort of a critique of something, that I always have a solution beforehand to, to, pro- yeah. to, to propose. Like, it's not, it's not good enough just to critique and not have something... Uh, you know something a solution at least at the very least or some more top process to present Derek one thing I really want to talk to you about is hamstring injuries you have a great presentation on your website about hamstring injuries and again one of these like the moments when I was listening to you was that you know you were and, and this is very interesting because I was only speaking about this you know a few months back at home there's this one athlete on our team and he just he just has a nightmare of hamstring injuries like he's just 10 years of hamstring injuries and originally what happened was and he came from another team by the way he's only been with us two years but like 10 years ago he like really badly tore his hamstring and I think just ever since that it just never got properly dealt with and it's just an ongoing thing but one thing you said in, in, in your in your hamstring um, in your hamstring video series which is available on your website you know you kind of turned to the interns that you were presenting to and you were like you know what what is okay while what exercises in the gym are a part of the puzzle what's wrong with them and you know they were kind of like a bit cheapish and you like someone you know give you an answer and it's like and you were like velocity is one thing anyway like the specificity of it is like and it just like and it's kind of like i know these i know these principles in my head but sometimes you just stall for a second i'm like well if they pull the hamstring when they run when they're running they probably should get better at running <laughs> so like, yes. you, you just you brought up this point of specificity because what i see anyway in ireland anyway derek i don't know what it's like in vancouver I'm, I'm assuming it's the same or in, in North America in general is that we get these athletes right they're like oh I pulled my hamstring and then they get these like brilliant like you know rehab exercise in the gym single, you know you know glute bridges single leg deadlifts kettlebell swings when in fairness the swing is a little like from a velocity standpoint it's getting a little more specific but all these exercises and they get really good at them and the pain's gone and they've done no sprinting and then they just go back yeah. and they pull their hamstring in like two or three sessions, if not even the first one. And they're wondering, but I'm doing all this rehab. And it's like, but you've completely violated the laws of specificity. You pulled it while you were sprinting. Your sport demands you to sprint. You did not prepare yourself for sprinting, which it violates the laws of specificity. So just, you know, you bring this up that, you know, the rehab should center around sprinting. And you even said in that video that you don't, your first thought in your mind is not to go to these strength exercises or these lower exercises. to try and get them back to running as quick as they can. So maybe just speak about like, your philosophy on this hamstring issue injury because it's it's huge in every sport even outside of track and field but uh, i'd really love to get your take on it yeah i in you know a lot of what i've learned is you know from those who came before me but who were very smart and i um you know I, I learned from trial and error and i see something and if it doesn't work i try to fix it right where let's 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 you know and i think that's the approach that works best but people again are so dogmatic about it's the hamstring we have to strengthen the hamstring okay great but I don't think it's a structural issue and and this is again people I've talked to I actually had a good conversation with Bill Knowles about injuries and hmm. and we kind of agreed that any injury that happens obviously there's a peripheral component but most of them are brain injuries they're software issues yeah they're not hardware issues right so 
if you come to that realization that, okay, we have a software issue here, then it makes you start thinking about how to problem solve better. If you think, oh, the hamstring's just weak and it just tore because it's weak, uh, you're going to be barking up the wrong tree and you're going to have problems that, you know, will, will amplify over time. So, okay, it's a software issue, so we have to reprogram the body to, um, you know, basically function properly. And part of that software issue is going to be, you know, reprogramming the coordination, the intramuscular coordination to make sure that things fire at the right time and relax at the right time and all that. And the only way you can do that is, quite honestly, sprinting. You can't go see a, a psychotherapist and say, oh, okay, we want you to fire this muscle and that muscle. It happens too fast. Um, so sprinting is, the, sprinting is the key. And there's a safe progression, and, you know, I go through that in the video. Um, you know, and then there could be some physical therapy, soft tissue work, and, and other things involved, but the most important thing is let's get the program right in the brain. Yeah. And the other thing, and I was talking, to, again, to Giuseppe, and, and this is somebody you should talk to, is, um, you know, what, what happened before the injury? And so we look at, and this is something I've never mentioned, so I'll, I'll do it on your podcast and you can reap the benefits, but look at all the sports where hamstring injuries are a problem. So American football, European soccer, AFL, there was a presentation somebody showed me that the AFL, most of the injuries are uh, hamstring injuries where there's lost, lost uh, man hours in games, right? It's, okay. It's, it's, so what? It's, pre it's prevalent too in the Irish games, like gay football, prevalent. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so a lot of these sports, what also happens? Well, they get head injuries. Oh, wow. They have concussions. They have, you know... So is there a connection between a head injury, a concussion, because I've seen it with some of the players that I've worked with, and these muscle tissue injuries? Maybe there's something happening at the cerebral level that doesn't allow them to fire properly, or it creates background noise that disturbs the signal, right? So uh, these are some of the conversations we're having now, and it's not just about a peripheral fix. It's about a central fix, uh, how the nervous system functions. And getting back to sprinting helps again the neuromuscular coordination but it also helps get a stronger signal through because if you talk to Charlie sprinting is the most stressful thing that you can do to the body in terms of the central nervous system involvement so if we start making that signal stronger maybe things get through better and you have a better rehabilitation process whereas if you go to a physiotherapist and again we're not here to kick the ass as a physiotherapist but it's very gradual it's very cautious it's very I would say over specific, or they try to be over specific, but it's very, you know, okay, don't want to hurt it, we don't, you know, and then they put him on the field, the guy pulls his hamstring again. So let, let's get away from that, let's deal with the problem. It's a software issue, let's get them to fire properly, let's get them to recruit properly, let's consider some of these other issues with head injuries, you know, because in football, you know, the guys that are getting the head injury, or the, the hamstring pulls are the running backs, defensive backs who have to tackle people, receivers who get hit, you know. Who stretches their hamstring the most? The kicker. How many kickers have hamstring injuries? Probably not that much because they're not getting hit as much. Mm. So, you know, there's all these, 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 these interesting things that, that, that I'm, you know, having conversations with different people and we're coming to the same conclusions. Yeah, yeah. I, there was, I was going to ask something just there about the, yeah, it'll come to me in just a second. Um, I remember Dan Faft also spoke about he believes that doing doing some type of backward running is also beneficial for the hamstring. He, you know, he's saying in one of his in one of his audios that you know he read through a lot of sports medicine files and 
he realized the sports that had a lot of backpedaling and it seemed to have less hamstring issues than a lot of sports that didn't. For And he, he says that he's always integrated that into kind of at least programs, this idea of doing some running backward or some backward drills. Have you ever seen any of that? I, you know, I've, anecdotally I've heard it, and I know that uh, in the track and field people have done it for decades. Hmm. Um, and again, I don't know if it it's one of those things where it's... Um, it's not going to harm the hamstring, but allows you to do something. Yeah. Um, uh, and maybe there's an eccentric component to backward running where, you know, you reach out, it extends, but it's not as stressful on the landing as, you know, forward running. Yeah. So yeah. there might be something there and maybe, you know, and we've done that. We've had some, some backpedaling as part of uh, the rehab process. Yeah. I don't think it's the key, yeah. but it, it could be a component. I just, I just remember what I was going to say to you now. I, I, I kind of filled that void with that question. <laughs> That's okay. That's a good, that was a good question. But uh, the, the, what I was going to bring up was, I think another reason why there's such like poor outcomes in the rehab is because, and, and personally myself, I'm the same, is that there's not a lot of people out there who know how to coach sprinting. Like, no. um, like, like running is such a, you know, well, to me anyway, there's so many, like, again, like any, probably someone who's an expert at it has it down to a T and it's so simple in their mind, but then in my mind it's not. Whereas, like, you know, like a squat, a deadlift, a bench, they're, like, I'm going to use the word, I'm going to kind of use the word, they're more, like, tangible, they're more, like, they're just easier to coach, like, you know, they're, like, they're kind of, there's more of an accepted technique among a vast majority of coaches of how a deadlift and a squat and a bench should look, if you get what I mean. But with, yeah. with sprinting, there seems to be a very, like, diverse, like, no, this is how it should be. No, you should push the ground. No, you should paw the ground. You should step over the knee. No, you shouldn't step over the knee. Your arms should be going this way. Really, they should be that way. Your fish should, you know. So, like, it's kind of like, I think another reason why there's such bad outcomes is because, one, people aren't getting the athletes to refix that software. So, they're not they're not refixing their sprint pattern. But the reason why they can't, they're not doing that is, one, they don't know how to coach sprinting. And so, too, they have no appreciation for it. So, like, I mean, how how do you think we could in, in, improve people's... Like, I suppose the answer is that physios and, and strength and coaches need to spend more time with track coaches and learn, the, you know, the, the technical aspects of sprinting so that they can integrate that into the re- rehabilitation process. I know myself, personally, track is one area that I really want to learn more of. And to be honest, that's kind of, uh, recently I've been looking at maybe doing an internship at the World Athletic Center down where Dan Faft is, because it's, it's just an area I want to really get better at myself, because so much training theory comes from track and field, and I just want to get better actually, like, coaching, sprinting. Like, even when I watch your videos, Derek, like, you, you know, you're there and you're talking about, like, you know, look at his arms, look at his shoulders, you know, look at his backside mechanics, and that's a weakness in me like you know you mean you could look at a sprinter and you'd be like you could straight away go bump like nick winkman too he's like bum 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 you look at this look at this and i'm kind of like what are you guys looking at i can't really pick it up that well so i, I think that's maybe one issue do you think that that's obviously an issue that just people don't actually have a grasp of how to coach sprinting or, or look at a sprint and say look at this we need to fix this yeah i think so and, and i don't know there's an there's an education piece in there somewhere that has to be present definitely yeah definitely i think it's it's a it's a bit of a dying art, um, and part of it is you know this, and I'm not going to say it's a specificity issue, but it's an over specialization issue too. Yeah. And we, we I mean that's that balance we talked about. You have to do your sport, but you know there's certain things you have to do to make yourself better at the sport, and running is one of them. But you know people would have rather have you run around a cone or run 
kicking a soccer ball or and and the running portion is lost because people do not see value in just running and maybe we need to start promoting that more maybe we need to have some sort of dare I say certification process Mm -hmm. um, by qualified individuals and and unfortunately the World Athletic Center is one of the only places you can go I mean fortunate for them I guess but but there's very few places people can go to get good instruction and learn from somebody who knows what they're talking about and um, you know it's it's, it's difficult like uh, I even go out you know, I even watch track meets, and I think the quality of running, the, the technical, at least in the sprints, is much poorer than it was 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Um, you know, synthetic tracks and shoes and all that make people run faster. And, but uh, when I watch them run, I don't go, wow, that guy looks like a really smooth runner. You know, it looks like he's killing himself. Like, yeah. So uh, there is a lost art right there, and I think, you know, maybe a bunch of us have to get together and start, you know, start putting more material out there that, that teaches people the finer points of, of sprinting and, and acceleration and all of these things. So, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough one. It's something I struggle with. Just going to wrap up here because uh, personally myself, I need to go get my dinner. I'm starving. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, but wait, being honest, we actually are coming up to the end. It's not because I'm hungry. Um, just with electro, the, the electro stimulation, can, can, you, can you maybe touch on that for the listeners? Because I know there's a lot of people who've never really you know, looked into it or heard from it. I, you know, obviously, I know from, from Al, when I spent time with Al, actually, he, he was putting on his legs while we were sitting down chatting. And, um, and I know Charlie used it extensively. So maybe just talk about the, the e-stim for, for the listeners and, and you know, the benefits, why you use it, and uh, how you incorporate it, or if, if you still do. Yeah, I, I think there's huge benefits, and it's again, there's there's no education on it, and even at you know at the level of physical therapists, they don't get enough education on it. But apparently, it's their domain. So, um, but you know, if, if for healthy individuals, again, we go back to this idea that you're going to provide a significant stimulus that you may not be able to do voluntarily, but you can do externally with the muscle stim. So, we provide such a uh, dramatic uh, stressor, uh, exceptional stressor, that your body takes it and it builds itself up, up better and stronger. And most of the stuff that people do nowadays don't do that. It's just piled on chronic stress of medium proportions, right, that just makes you tired, might give you some work capacity, but doesn't advance you in terms of speed, power, and all these great things. But muscle stim can do that. Um, albeit in a compartmentalized, you know, you work this muscle, that muscle, but when you go and train, now these muscles have a, an increased alactic capacity to fire. So I think, you know, that's something that people have to explore a bit more. And, and you know, the work that I've done in the NFL, uh, so I'll talk a bit about a success in the NBA, but work I've done in the NFL, um, when you get into a training camp scenario or you get into a, a regular season scenario, um, they don't have the energy. They have meetings, they have games, they have travel, um, they have injuries, sore shoulders, sore hips, whatever. So uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to make them do a maximal strength workout every week and just, okay, we got to keep hitting the weights. There's a wear and tear component to that. But if you can use muscle stim, hit their quads, hit their hamstrings, hit their deltoids, their you know lats and all that, with the muscle stim, they can sit there they can relax. Well, it's, it's pretty intense, but they can. They don't have to do work, but they're still getting a benefit from it that they can carry through into the game. Mm. 
So there's an application for pro sports in season that's that's exceptionally important. And then there was an athlete, uh, an NBA athlete, prominent NBA athlete, who was having problems coming back from a knee rehab for years. And so the team calls me up and they go, you know, we want to try muscle stem. What would you say? And I said, look, you got to put it on his quad and you have to fire it up at, at the highest level you can because something in his system, there's an inhibitory um, reflex in there that's not allowing him to fire his quad. And so every time he would jump off the leg, he's like, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable. You know, and this guy is an exceptional athlete, you know, and, and, and before he got injured was, you know, one of the best in the league. So now you have to hit it every time, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of volume, but maybe five hard contractions of 10 seconds, get away from it, you know, go let them practice. Okay, then go, you know, do it every day, do it before a game. And guess what? Guy had the best playoffs, you know, everybody thinks he's back, and hopefully he is back because he's an exceptional player, but it took that stimulus in a safe, and it's a safe manner because we're not putting 500 pounds on his back to get the same uh, benefit. Yeah. We're just putting a muscle stim on his quad, firing it up, his body assimilates it, his brain interprets it and goes, hey, it's safe, I can fire that. And I can fire it maximally and have no problems. He goes out to play. This is the best I've felt in years. I have no problem. So. And is there is there is the stress more peripheral than central, or is there both going on there? Or. It. I mean, it has to be both. I think it's more central, because you know, if you have something firing down there, you can't tell me the brain's not going to recognize it. Yeah, it's just because because the way the way you said, you know, he's getting that so much force, and then the knee pain went away. So obviously, like the central system is like obviously accommodating to that, meaning that it's, it perceives yeah, it perceives it as less of a stress or less yeah. less of a threat. Yeah. Every. I mean. We could argue that everything is central, right? Like, Absolutely. you know, peripheral, like, massage is central. So if I rub a muscle and I'm trying to loosen it up, the muscle just doesn't relax because I'm touching it. The muscle sends a signal back to the brain and says, yeah. hey, something good's happening down here. Can you release the muscle? Mm-hmm. Right? So it all, it's all autonomic or central or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but we have a way of now communicating with the brain that we have a safe environment for, you know, maximal recruitment now. Um, and I think that's, you know, 90% of injuries nowadays is, is talking with the brain and saying, hey, everything's okay now, let's, let's move ahead with this. Yeah. Uh, Derek, where, where could more people find out more about you know, uh, the, the East M units and information and maybe even purchase one? Uh, it's this, it, just go to the strengthpowerspeed.com site and we have a whole thing there just on EMS. And, uh, you know, again, we have uh, articles on it that you can reference and you, there's ways to contact me through the site as well. But yeah. Uh, you know, it's been around for you know, I would you know, E-STEM has been around for hundreds of years, right? But yeah, yeah. people still haven't realized the full potential. I think because if we look at everything as a peripheral fix, it, it kind of creates an obstacle to what the full potential is. Yeah, yeah. So we need uh, we need to realize the brain the brain runs the show. So it does. Uh, just finally, uh, uh, Derek, in regards to uh, resources for all coaches and advice to, so kind of finishing off on what would be your, your main advice to all coaches listening to the podcast? And then after that, what would be your top resources in terms of you know books, DVDs, podcasts, uh, courses, people to visit? I know you kind of touched on that with Al and Rob. Um, and, and your resources don't have to be anything to do with training. They could be life, spirituality, business, mindset, whatever. Uh, yeah, I think, so, yeah, I mean, so, that's, so that's where I'm going right now. It's like, you know, I, I, to pick up a training book, you know, 
seems like it would be a waste of time for me. And I'm not saying that in a dismissive way or like I'm smarter than everybody, but um, where I'm at right now, I want to learn more about the nervous system or I want to learn more about um, recovery processes or, you know, how these things work. Um, and at the same time, maybe there is a psychological implication or a way to how to reach people better, how to reach athletes better, how to connect with them. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I would, and as far as training goes, don't be afraid to look at something that's maybe 20, 30 years old. We're so caught up in this idea that, oh, what's the next book coming out and, and this is going to provide all the answers. And you know what, there's books from the 1950s that I have that describe sprinting better than most books nowadays. So, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, we all want to go on the internet. The problem with the internet is that it started pretty much in like the mid-1990s and then, you know, it really blew up in, you know, past 2000, but you can, you may not be able to get access to something that is useful just on the internet. You might have to actually go to a library and crack open a book. Um, and that's what you were saying, like, you're going back to textbooks and, and learning about basic processes. Yeah. And I think that's what that's what's going to make you a better coach and a better person and more, you know, just smarter to deal with multiple situations. The more you read a book about how to do how to, the more you limit yourself, I find. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it's something I meant to say to you earlier on when you kind of mentioned that. Remember, you were saying, uh, I want to know what Pele done. I remember uh, I was at a seminar years ago and, and the, the guy giving a presentation who, who actually is another mentor of mine, a very intelligent person, Owen Lacey. Lacey turned around and he said, if you ever, he was talking more so about bodybuilding and, and developing strength and physique, and he was kind of saying, if you actually really want to learn about this stuff, he was like, go look at the old books from the old timers at the start of the 20th century, so the likes of Shando and Hackenschmidt and, you know, the, you know uh, Thomas Inch, you know, these guys, so Hackenschmidt's book, A Way to Live, and, um, and there's a website called Super Strength Books, and it has all the old time books from, like, the early part of the 20th century. I have about four or five, you know, like, dinosaur training and... There's a book from Anthony Dartillo that's that's like that was actually written in the seventies and eighties, so it's not that old. But the other books are like from like the nineteen hundreds, nineteen nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, and it's kind of like looking at what these guys did. You know, they didn't have the science, but they obviously knew intuitively what they were doing. And this was also before drugs too. So, and it's funny now because you read it and they're like, you know, they 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 talk about like progressive overload and the need for protein in the diet and you know the need for sleep the need for active recovery cold hot baths you know it's so and the need for stretching and meditation and it's just like this is what we're doing today yeah you know the, you know, the guy's dead he's been a dead for hundreds of years 100 years and this guy's basically a sports scientist now so yeah, yeah, it's yeah exactly. crazy. so yeah it's crazy but just say so that's your advice in, in terms of top resources uh, what what would you say to, to anyone to anyone out there is there you know any you know is there a one book or a, or, a, or a DVD or a podcast or a website or any type of resource and again it doesn't have to be just limited to training um, I don't know I, it's hard because like obviously you know I enjoy I try to read speed trap every year and just kind of you know get pull the finer points out of it. Um, there is some really good points in that, isn't there? Like there, when you when you skim, I've I've read through it once and and I've kind of skimmed through it again, and you pick up these like little bits where he talks about Jared Mash, and like oh I forgot that bit, and you kind of like put it in. Yeah, you know, and and again, I, I those types of things um, where he's just kind of telling a story about how he figured things out. Yeah. I think that's that's much more interesting than like okay this is how you do this or this is how you do that I, I really don't like those books um, so 
document that circulates around, and if anybody can get their hands on it, it's it's good. It's very comprehensive. And, and the, I must tell you before you go, there's a really funny story. I, I actually have that book as well, but there's such a funny story about this, and I told Alan, he, he actually he actually said this made him feel really good, and that he was very flattered by it, but I, I, uh, I, before I went to Al's, I spent two days in... Um, IFAS, Indianapolis Fitness and Sports, uh, yep. in, in Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training. So Bill Hartman and Mike Robertson, and yep. uh, obviously two extremely bright guys. And I know Mike very well. I never met Bill before, so it was my first time kind of meeting and spending time with Bill. And uh, I, you know, I was saying to Bill on the last day, oh, I'm going to go to Al's meals tomorrow. I was going to his home, spend two days with him. And Bill just looks at me and he goes, "Do you have the book?" And I was, <laughs> and like I was like, I was like Al's book. And then he goes. I was, I was like the word document and he goes yes and he goes come to my office and he had a, he had a printed off and bind it and I was like oh my because I'd actually never I didn't mind this on like my my iPad so I just read it off my yeah. my iBook and like so I open up and, and then it was so funny like I opened it and the two of us went I went to page 25 on it or 25 26 where I had he has that chart and like because just just as I was home Bill goes I go to that chart every time it was just so funny and I, I was telling Al like, and I was trying to tell Al like, I was like, Al, do you realize that your book is like, your book has this like underground cult following, like all, yes. like all the culture, like, do you have the book? This is so funny. But uh, and then when, when like when Bill opened it, I was like, how many times do you refer back to that chart? And he's like, oh, it's all the time. So uh, and that's just funny that you mentioned that book. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I guess at some point I have to convince Al to like actually publish it and get it out there and. Um, you know that's the great thing about Al is he's not about that. He's just about you know helping people and stuff. So you know, good on him. Yeah, Derek. Uh, finally, just where can people find out more information about you and um, all the the great uh, informational and educational resources you have? Um, uh, again, just if you go to strengthpowerspeed.com, if you follow me on Twitter at Derek M Panson, you know I try to every article I publish, I'll put it up on Twitter. Um, you know add me on Facebook, whatever, you know, uh, the more dialogue we can have, the better. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm trying to fi- walk this fine line of like, I want to obviously promote myself, but at the same time, I'm just putting out what, what comes to my mind. I'm not trying to game the system or, you know, put out what people want. I'm trying to put out what I like, and if you like it, great. If you don't, that's, that's fine with me too, but it's more experiential. It's more like, this is what I see. This is what I, you know, I talked to this person. This is this is what I, this is my take on it. So, yeah, yeah. you know, just putting it out there. So, and obviously for the listeners, you know that that all of all of those, uh, everything mentioned will be in the show notes. So there will obviously be a link to Derek's website in the show notes. So you can just go straight to the show notes, click on it, and, and go over there. And I highly recommend you do. There's like reams of information and like some of the presentations you got, like Al's uh, speed, the ultimate weapon. Oh, that presentation is where Al Miller introduced him. Brilliant. Yes. Uh, yeah, just just Al Miller's introduction is fabulous, right? Oh, like it's yeah, it makes it like it, it's emotional, like you know, it, you know, it is. yeah, really emotional and uh, great to see. Um, and that is, uh, sorry, before Al Miller is actually a good friend and, and, and a huge influence on me too, and like just a great person. And like, mm-hmm. if you have a chance, if you're in you know Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, visit Al Miller. Another quality person. Yeah, great coach. He's he's definitely on the list as well to visit. But uh, so guys, definitely check that website. It's it's as I said, packed with information. 
and I just want to personally thank Derek. Uh, Derek, thanks so much for you know ninety minutes of your time on, on a Saturday. You know, you, you know, you, it's a, it's a family day. You got to spend time with, with your wife and your family, and you took ninety minutes out. So I really do appreciate it, and really appreciate you uh, dropping some knowledge bombs for the listeners. So thanks so much, and just stay online for maybe you know thirty seconds after I hit stop here, and we'll say yeah. Our, so say well, well thank you, thank you for providing this forum, Robbie. You, you, questions were fantastic it's just like i was having a regular conversation so yeah. good on you too thanks for, i really appreciate that so guys listen thanks for listening um you know the usual stuff we say at the end of these things you know uh, go to itunes if you can leave a review it obviously helps bump us up and, and get the podcast out to more listeners so i really do appreciate it and uh, i'll be back very soon with another show so take care be well and stay strong mm-hmm.